Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Folklore, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Nancy Ann, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I will be talking with David Todd Lawrence and Elaine Lawless, authors of When They Blew the Levee, Race, Politics, and Community in Pinham, Missouri, which is an ethnography of a rural African-American town that was destroyed when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers made the decision to breach the Birds Point Levee in the historic flood of 2011. David Todd Lawrence is an associate professor who teaches folklore and African-American literature and culture at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Elaine Lawless is Professor Merita at the University of Missouri, where she taught folklore and women's and gender studies. Welcome, Todd. Welcome, Elaine, to the New Books and Folklore podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. (laughs) Um, First of all, I want to thank you both for your work in writing this book, for putting into print the testimonies of the residents of Pinhook, Missouri, who resisted racial community and physical erasure in the face of destruction of their town. It's um, quite a powerful book, and it won the 2019 Chicago Prize for Excellence in Folklore Scholarship. But before we head um, into talking about Pinhook, I'm wondering if you could tell me about how you came to folklore. What's your what's your folklore origin story? So, Elaine, I'm going to start with you because you're the senior scholar <clears throat> among us. Oh, okay. Um, so I have always been an English major uh, in college and then in um, graduate school when I got my master's at, at uh, University of Illinois. Um, and I, w- I wasn't happy in English. It seemed like an awful lot of uh, work reading dead white guys and um, was really separate from real people. And so um, I was fortunate enough to have two folklorists as teachers at Illinois. One was Archie Green, who became very well known in our field as a lobbyist for the American Folklife Center um, and a ballot scholar. He's a wonderful human being. So I was in his classes and also a very young professor, Larry Danielson, who was teaching folklore courses at Illinois at that time. Um, And they both really inspired me to think about uh, folklore as a major uh, for my Ph.D., um, I had also taught at Yale for a year with Bill Ferris, who's very well known in folklore, um, Mississippi scholar. And um, I went to him just to sit in on his classes, uh, but I ended up being his TA for some courses and that sealed the deal. So I applied to uh, graduate studies in folklore and went to Indiana, um, which of course is Mecca for folklore, uh, or it was uh, then. I went there in 1977, and I think there were 33 folklore grad students in the PhD program that year. Many of them are still active folklorists today. Um, it was an amazing class, um, and it was it, it was a great place to be for folklore. Um, so my first job 
what in folklore um, after I got the PhD uh, was at the University of Missouri. And I had been born in Missouri. I didn't think I'd ever go back to Missouri. It wasn't a place that was very progressive. Um, but the university was, uh, was a, a wonderful place to be, um, to teach folklore. And um, when Anand Prahlad came to Missouri, he and I together really worked hard to build a folklore program. Um, it was within English, um, but students could get a PhD in folklore with us. And um, I never looked back. It's been great. Okay, wow. Thanks for sharing that. How about you, Todd? Uh, I'm just sort of like amazed at Elaine's uh, story. It's like so perfectly told. I don't know if I could match that. <laughs> um, my, I think my story is just sort of more um, falling into things. You know, I also started off as an uh, English major as an undergraduate at Rockhurst University, which is in Kansas City. And um, I went to, I did an MA at uh, Creighton University in Omaha. And I, I studied um, American realism there with a, a scholar uh, called Greg Zacharias is one of one of uh, really one of the really great teachers I've had in my life. He really um, influenced me a lot. And that's part of why I decided to go to the University of Missouri. In the beginning, I was going to study American realism at the University of Missouri. But when I got there, um, I think I always had this sort of underlying interest in African-American literature and culture. And I got there and I um, I sort of fell into folklore. There were uh, students there, you know, there was a program there that was really vibrant. And those students in that program were really, they were fun. They were studying really interesting things. And they started sort of inviting me to gatherings and, you know, come over to Elaine's house and things like that. And then I eventually took a a, a class with Elaine. Um, and I think it was, I think it was feminist ethnography, maybe. I think maybe was the class um, and the people in that class, you know, were the sort of core of the, the folklore cohort at the time. And they all became really good friends of mine. And uh, I still, you know, I'm in touch with them today. And a lot of them have uh, jobs in, you know, folklore and public sector and um, in an academia and other places. So um, for me, it was about sort of finding a place where, I could do the kind of work that I wanted to do. I was really interested in um, Af- African American music. I was interested in um, in uh, Rastafari um, uh, religious belief and tradition, and so um, it was sort of perfect for me with Elaine and and Prahlad there. And it just felt like a really it was sort of the first time where I really felt like nurtured as a person, as in addition to you know as a sort of scholar in training and I felt like uh people were if I said I'd like to do this (laughs) they said okay let's do that you know so um that was really a a great feeling and I haven't had that (laughs) very very many other places in my career but that that was always one place that I can look back to and feel like I felt um I was in the right place at the right time with the right people so um yeah Mm Well, I have to say, you know, the field is really lucky to have both of you and to have both of you stay in the field for so long. I mean, you know, both of you are doing really interesting work and, um, you know, which leads us into the book, When They Blew the Levee, which is really a fantastic read. I mean, it was, for me, it was really gripping. Um, I'd like to start talking about the book with a quote. Um, You write that your book, um, quote, 
focuses on two conflicting narratives about the flood of 2011, one promoted by the Army Corps of Engineers that boasts the success of the breach of the levees and the diversion of the flooding waters according to plan, and the other gleaned from oral narratives we heard from displaced residents of the town of Pinhook. So can you talk a little bit about what happened to the town of Pinhook and what are the two competing narratives? Sure. So um, either of you. you, you Okay, you want me to take that, Elaine? Oh, sure. <laughs> if you get it wrong, if you get it wrong, I'll correct you. How's that? <laughs> this is how we work. So. <laughs> All right. Um, sounds great. Uh, that's a joke. That, Nancy, that's a joke. <laughs> um, I would never correct Todd ever, ever, ever. Well, it's pretty true that we, co- well, we correct yes, each I other. Would. Yes, we I became, would. Yeah. We okay. learned how to be partners. You know, that's one thing maybe we'll talk about with regard to this mm-hmm. book is that when you when you work okay. together, you have to learn how to be partners and how to, you know, I don't know if correct's the right word, but like, you know, respond to what each other think and are doing and negotiate yeah. some of that stuff. So, yeah. Question. But anyway. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so um, the story of the the disaster, the displacement of Pinhook people, um, it's uh, May uh, 2011. Um, really, the, I guess it starts that, that spring with a, a, a lots and lots and lots of snow and, and precipitation. And there's a, a huge flood that um, happens uh, specifically in the, along the Mississippi River. But also the Missouri River and the Ohio Rivers, it's basically that whole system. It's, it's a, a thousand-year flood, basically. And um, the people of Pinhook, the town is located inside of a, of a floodway, um, the Birds Point New Madrid floodway. Um, and a, the floodway is part of a, um, the Mississippi River and tributary system, which is a kind of flood mitigation system. Um, it's designed to basically divert water from the Mississippi River to um, make the river level go down. And um, it had only been operated one time in, uh, I think, in 1937. Um, So that was even before anybody who, you know, currently lived at Pinhook at the time, any of their ancestors had come there. So most of the the people who came and sort of founded um, Pinhook came in the early 1940s. So I don't think that they had any sort of expectation that this would this this floodway would be operated. Um, so the the flooding got worse and worse and worse and worse, and eventually the Army Corps of Engineers um, operated the the system, as they say, which meant they blew a, a giant hole in the front side levee and let lots and lots and lots of water flood 130,000 acres of land, which in the middle. Um, the town of Pinhook sat. And the maybe the most sort of terrible thing about all of it was that the people of Pinhook were really not effectively notified that this was going to happen. Um, Deborah Robinson, who's our sort of um, closest uh, collaborator on this project, who's some, she's like the mayor of Pinhook. Um, she's referred to that way. Um, you know, she told us and, and many other people told us they, they never got an official um, notification that this was going to happen. They were basically, you know, trying to find out, is are they going to blow the levy? Are they not going to blow the levy? What's going to happen? And by the time they had a pretty good idea that that was probably going to happen, it was really too late for them to um, evacuate their their belongings out of their town. And so 
they only had about less than 24 hours to do that. And so they didn't get much of their stuff at all. So they had to basically leave their lives behind. They didn't get any help in evacuating. They had trouble finding trucks, you know, all that stuff. And so they were dispersed in a lot of different places, some nearby, some far away, as far away as Kansas City and, and uh, Chicago, St. Louis. Um, so it was a real, you know, disaster for their community. Um, but I think, you know, the book is a lot about how they maintained community in spite of being in all these different places because of what happened to them. And I think, you know, to talk about the the narratives, I mean, the narrative of the Army Corps of Engineers um, was essentially that they did what they had to do. They followed um, the procedures um, for the Missouri you know, River and tributary system. And also that they basically saved, you know, so much farmland by doing what they did. Um, the account, one of the accounts of the flood is called, uh, um, what's the name of that book, Elaine? Do you I, remember? I was uh, just thinking it's called um, Divine Providence. Yeah, that's it. Divine mm. Providence. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of the way that they, you know, sort of cast their role in this as the almost like the hand of God, you know, saving this farmland and saving other towns. Meanwhile, they had destroyed Penhook so that it was no longer habitable. So the story that the Penhook people told to us was very much um, in contrast to that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I was really struck by um, how how it seemed that uh, they had forgotten that or didn't know that the town of Pinhook existed. And this act that, you know, supposed to be so helpful and save so, um, you know, that was such a great thing. In the, in this act, they left out these, you know, the small town, you know. And so it reminds me of, what, um, of another thing that you said in the book, where you say that racism is systemic, even necessary to maintain the fabric of life enjoyed by most white Americans. And then a little bit further in the book, you say that for those in power, the African-American community was invisible, unimportant, and dispensable. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, because that definitely seemed like the case here. You know, on one hand, they saved all these, you know, they saved all this, but what was the cost in that process? So in what ways was Pinhook an example of the systemic racism that you were talking about? Do you want to take that one, Elaine? Oh, no, you're doing really well. <laughs> no, keep it, keep going. I'll, I'll add something, but go ahead. Okay. You're on a roll. Um, well, I think, you know, that's a big, that <laughs> whole question is something that we really um, grapple with in the book. Because, you know, when, when I first, when we first started the project, um, Elaine came to me and, um, you know, we were at AFS actually in, uh, in Bloomington. And she said, I, I want to talk to you about something. And um, and we talked and she told me about Pinhook. Uh, it, you know, Pinhook is located very close to where she grew up in southeast Missouri, in the Boot Hill, Missouri. And essentially the question she was saying is, I want to, you know, I want to find out how this could have happened. Um, and that became a really, I think, important animating question for the project over, you know, almost now almost 10 years we've been still writing about. Um, the people of Pinhook, how could this have happened to them? How could they have been invisible? How could they have been ignored? All these sorts of things. And what we found, you know, certainly not so much in the story that they told us. I mean, they were really reluctant to say things like, this is because of racism or this happened 
because we were black or because our town is is a black town. Um, but it became pretty obvious to us, you know, over the course of doing the research that um, essentially they had been, you know, erased. Um, you know, we 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 interviewed the there was a, a lawsuit by the state of Missouri against the um, Army Corps of Engineers against the federal government to try to stop them from from operating the the uh, floodway. And um, the, we interviewed the the judge who essentially allowed that to go on. And we asked him, you know, like, well, was there discussion about Pinhook when during the deliberations, like, you know, the, the arguments about this? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure there was, yeah. And he was looking through his his notes and in the in the documents from the from the case, and and he couldn't find anything, and there really wasn't. And they actually, you know, he gave us the pile of documents, everything they had from from the case, and we went through it page by page by page, and we didn't find any um, testimony where anyone mentioned Pinhook at all. And you got to be thinking, how can they make a decision like this? when there's a town of people living in the middle of this floodway and, and nobody ever mentions it, nobody ever talks about it. Um, and that, you know, that was really shocking to us. And so we were thinking a lot about how, you know, black people in general um, become, you know, suffer from erasure, but in particular, because this is a, a rural um, area where this took place and essentially a place where Black people are not supposed to be um, that they're sort of doubly erased and we're, we're doubly erased in this in this case. And so that's one of the things that we talk about a lot in the book. But I mean, it is it's it's sort of it's still shocking when I think about it now, you know, the question of how could this have happened? And yet at the same time, um, it's not surprising um, because this is a sort of thing that happens to to people of color all over this country. And that's one of the things like Elaine probably remember, like every time we went and gave a talk somewhere about Pinhook, someone would come up to us afterwards and say, did you know about this town? And it would be like indigenous people. It would be like uh, Latinx people. It would be, you know, they would always be people of color, towns where people of color lived and something had happened to destroy their town. It wasn't, you know, this one-off kind of incident. It was happening many, many times in history, you know, so, you know, in a way it's shocking, but we shouldn't be surprised. And so Pinhook is, Um, you know, Pinhook is symbolic of many towns in the United States, small rural people of color that are seen as expendable um, in the larger scheme of things, or according to the American government. I'm sorry, Elaine, you were going to say something. And I know, I I just wanted to say that um, in working with Todd, which has been fantastic, you talked about having a partnership. I had never done research before in my life. Um, well, I did in grad school, but after that, never had a partner. And so working with someone else on this topic, uh, we really did bring different things to the project. And I remember when Todd, I think, Todd, we were sitting in the car um, in the parking lot of the destroyed church and we were both taking notes on our computers and you started talking about urban normativity. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, but it made sense because the way you were framing it is that um, with the migration of many Blacks from the South to the North, that was something that people knew about. That was a migration 
people knew about. And in fact, for a lot of people, the association of uh, black with urban centers is kind of normal now, right? And so you talking about why it was so weird that it was easy to erase these uh, black farmers because that's not where we thought uh, migrating blacks landed, right? Um, so that got us to go into the history more and find out that a lot of black people who were moving from the South actually didn't want to live in the urban North. They actually loved working with the soil and they wanted to own their own land. And then that revealed that the only land available to them in Missouri, at least, was this land that essentially was in the spillway. Um, and that everybody knew when they bought that land that it could be flooded, except historically they kind of forgot that or their ancestors didn't even know that you know the land technically was in the spillway. But I remember us talking about how one of the reasons why it was um, possible for this town to be ignored. And it, as far as I know, Pinhook may still be on maps of Missouri. At, in 2011, it was absolutely a town on the map in Missouri. Um, so for people to ignore that and to say, oh, we didn't even know those people were down there, um, just isn't true. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that was definitely one of our questions, like how could this happen? Um, and I think in the last year or two, um, issues of race in this country have made it possible for us to reframe some of our thinking and our expectations there. Um, so I just wanted to add that. So, so both of you mentioned that it was very clear that it was an issue of racism mm. but, uh, or systemic racism. Um, but Todd, you also mentioned that the, um, you know, the residents, you know, such as Deborah Washington, I'm sorry, Robinson, she seemed reluctant or she didn't explicitly state that or she didn't think that. Can you say a little bit more about yeah, that? I mean, I, will, I wouldn't say that she didn't think that. I would say that they were really careful not to say that and not to make their case that they were making about that. And I think, you know, it's, it, it, you know, looking back on it, I think it is sort of like one of those cases of sort of almost like stereotype threat, you know, where they were sensitive to being seen as, you know, sort of angry black women, you know, sort of, uh, you know, going to racism as the first, you know, the, the major reason why they're, you know, making their case. And um, they were really, really conscious of how, they th they were being seen as they were making their appeal um, that their town should be you know they should be given money and, and allowed to rebuild their town. Um, it, I mean, in some ways, it's like a sort of rhetorical move, right? They're aware of who their audience was. The people who were in power were white people, right? And they didn't want to be seen as accusing those white people of being racist because they didn't think that would help them. Um, we did talk to you know, some other people, you know, mostly men. And, and this was sort of, um, sometimes it was like kind of after we'd sort of finished the book um, or towards the end of the book, but sometimes men who didn't want, you know, they didn't talk to us when we were kind of in the main gathering um, phase of the book, we'd end up like just sort of chatting with them and they would say, you know, like, well, you don't want to talk to me because I'll tell you the truth or something like that, right? And um, so, you know, that's, we started to see that 
okay, it's not that the that um, understanding of the situation wasn't there. I mean, they're not stupid. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're smart people. You know, they knew what was going on, but they also saw like this wouldn't be in their benefit to to make that a part of the case. You know, right? Okay, that that makes sense. Right. Even today, yeah. I mean, if we had this um, conversation. And we have had conversations with them post book, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Where we've, we have tried to make Todd and I've been pretty stubborn about holding to our view that this is systemic racism and they have every right to speak out. And they are very cautious to this day. I remember we were, I don't know, a couple of years ago, we were at a pinhook gathering and we were talking about race relations and I don't know, the president and, various things. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, how do to Deborah, how do you feel about race relations in the country now and how black people are treated? And I don't remember how, or what the president's doing. I don't remember exactly what I said. Um, and she said, oh, I'm going to pray for him. That's what I'm going to do. And I thought, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but that, that's, that's really <laughs> typical of her. Um, it, it was just even to this day, they're not going to speak openly uh, about how they're feeling because, yeah, Todd's right. It's a rhetorical move. They know exactly what they're doing. And um, it's gendered. There is a whole chapter in the book about women uh, being the leaders and, and the ones who filed all the paperwork and went to meetings where they were treated poorly. And um, the the gender was very prominent um, and I, and and that was strategic also you know and um, yeah they knew exactly what they were doing and they hoped that what they did would um, improve the situation for them and in some respects eventually it kind of did a few of them got houses way later um, but it didn't really solve the problem. And certainly no one in the government came back and said, oh, this really should ever, said this shouldn't have happened. No one has ever said that after the fact. Mm-hmm. Never. You know, they're right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they probably nope. won't. Nope. No, in a, okay. in a way, I mean, this is something we've written about since the book. Right. The fact that they got houses, which... Um, this happened in 2018, the spring of 2018. Um, there was a community development block grant, uh, I think that came from the state of Missouri, um, but it wasn't enough to build nine houses, which is how many they built. They, it took uh, Mennonite Disaster Services and um, to come on board. There was help from uh, uh, Catholic uh, charities, um, volunteer labor, um, Amish labor from Ohio, um, a lot of uh, donated um building supplies and things like that to be able to build those houses. And like, that was a, a, a happy thing, you know, I mean, now, uh, you know, Deborah and her sister Twan and her mother and, um, you know, four or five other people have houses to live in, but it really let the federal government off the hook, right? Because now they have houses, there's nothing really left to complain about. Um, and so, you know, in some ways the case is, is shut. Um, you know, we've sort of been, pushing back and keep pushing back. I mean, I talked to, uh, I actually talked to Deborah on the phone the other day and Tuan on, on text. And I was sort of saying to them, you know, people are still asking us to talk about what happened to you and, 
um, you know, early on when we were, when we first started, when we would go and talk about things at conferences or something like that, we would try to bring them with us if we could, or um, to to have them speak for themselves. And I was sort of saying to them, do you, "Would you guys still like to do that? Because I mean, Zoom, we you wouldn't have to travel or anything. We could, you know, set it up so that you could show up and 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 talk for yourself." And and they both said, "You know, that I'm we're glad people are still interested, but it's time for us to move on. We had to we had to." get on with our lives. And so they're basically done, um, you know, so that the fact that they have something is enough to kind of like, well, we're done. It's time to move on. They're not going to keep, you know, pushing this. It's sort of us that are left to continue to tell this story. And I think they've given us permission to continue to do it. And they've recognized that um, some of the things that we say are different from some of the, from the way that they would say it. And we've talked to them about it and they sort of said, okay, well, this is, you go ahead and say what you need to say and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, at least you have this historical record of this town because even though the residents, you know, they got some houses, individual houses, but they don't, the town isn't replaced, right? right? So, you know, it leads me into my other question, which is, um, you know, wanting to find out more about the history of Pinhook. Here you have a, uh, rural African-American town. And, you know, as we mentioned before, this Pinhook is probably one of many towns that are also small and uh, unnoticed. But I'd like to um, hear you say a little bit more about how Pinhook began. Yeah. And what was it like and what it was like to live in Pinhook? Yeah, well, we, we have a whole chapter. I think that's the first chapter in the book, right? Is And I think um, that was, a, you know, we were really intentional about that, that once we started working on the project, which initially was about a disaster, we started to see pretty quickly that, well, we're, we're really the real story here is about a community. And that meant we wanted to really talk about how they saw their community because we would talk to all these people and they would talk about this place that they had lived and how beautiful it was and how safe it was and how connected they felt to each other. And all these sorts of things, you know, there was, I think there was a, uh, Mr. Williams does that he was the one person who was like, it was hard to live out there, <laughs> but, but most everybody else, you know, they, they acknowledged <laughs> that it was hard work and farming was hard work and all that, but that generally speaking, they really loved living out there. And it, you know, it, it basically in the early 1940s, um, the story that we heard from several people was that there were, uh, five men who came from Tennessee um, looking to buy land to farm and start a, a community um, farm for themselves. And um, they came to the boot hill and uh, this was the land that was available to them. It was inside of the floodway. It was land that nobody really wanted and therefore it was available to them, these black men to buy in the early 1940s. It wasn't illegal at the time for black people to buy land, but um, in practice, in practice, it was difficult for black people to buy land almost impossible for black people to buy land at the time. So um, they really had to come upon the right situation with a person willing to sell. Um, and that's what happened. And so they, you know, bought this land, um, sort of divided it up amongst themselves. Then other people came, they invited, you know, told their families, that sort of stuff. And um, the town grew and grew and grew. And from, you know, what we understood from the stories, it was a, 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 a very, you know, like a bustling town with a church and, you know, like a sort of, uh, there were stores, 
Um, I think there was maybe even a like a movie theater. I mean, there were all you know all the sort of uh, things that you would find in a small town. And I think technically it was uh, considered a, a village, so it was under five hundred people even at its height. Um, but it was like a you know it was a prosperous place. They weren't. They were. I think they might have thought of themselves as you know struggling or poor or something like that. But also they they were successful farmers. They, they struggled against the land. They struggled against you know the flooding that happened every year. It wasn't you know just sort of like you wake up every morning and crops are growing out of the ground. It was work. But um, they those are sort of the ways that they talked about it: hard work, but also a place where they could be safe, a place where they could be with their relatives and friends, um, their community, place where they could worship um, and have their own church. Um, those are the ways that they talked about it. And, uh, you know, it was really, I think, interesting and appealing for us to hear those stories. And we just kept hearing them again and again and again and again about this kind of this way of life that was, you know, destroyed at that place, you know, by the Army Corps of Engineers and on uh, in May of 2011. Can I add something to that? Yeah, I, I really, oh, go okay. ahead. Um, go ahead, Elaine. Well, go ahead. I really like what Todd said, that it was the disaster that caught our attention. But as we worked on this project, it became clear that there was so much more going on here than just the disaster, that it just, it, it expanded as we learned the story of Pinhook. And one of the reasons that we wanted to use the subtitle where we say race, politics, and community, is that all those factors came into being as we worked on the project. So that to go back um, to something you said earlier, um, there were some houses built in 2018, as Todd was saying, but they're not where Pinhook lived. It, it's not on that same land. Um, they're on streets uh, in Sykeston, Missouri, the furthest streets from the town center. In fact, in, in areas that were cotton fields. And those houses are tiny tract houses that the Amish built for them. They're tiny. And to go back and look at photographs and listen to them talk about, say, Aretha's house, who she's the matriarch. Um, I think it was a five-bedroom house and it had a patio in the back. And it was on this land and they built this arbor. It, the contrast between what they had at, out at Pinhook, what they had built themselves and what, where they are now. And so it's not only that the houses are not nearly like the houses they had in Pinhook. But what's the saddest for us to watch is that the sense of community can't be there. It, it is in the people we heard Tuan talk about that, you know, that whatever Pinhook is now today is exists on uh, these tiny streets in uh, Sykeston, but it's it's something meager compared to what it was in Pinhook. Um, and I don't think, as you're saying, I don't think that Pinhook is that unique. I've noticed in the last three or four years, articles in the Atlantic in uh, the New Yorker on small African American towns in the South and in the Midwest that were successful and built up a community, as Todd was saying, where they could be safe and happy um, and thrive and, and actually thrive. Um, and and those 
towns have been erased. In fact, Pen, um, Todd, you come from a town, uh, mm-hmm. or some of your family comes from a town that similarly was, uh, has disappeared. It, you know. Yeah. So yeah, my family's from uh, Pennytown in Missouri, and which is um, one of a number of uh, black townships in Saline County, Missouri, in central Missouri. But yeah, I mean, there were small towns like that all over the Midwest. I mean, maybe Nicodemus is Kansas is a really uh, pretty well known example, but Oklahoma had tons and tons of of black townships, and um, they were these places where black people could, you know, relatively speaking feel safe, uh, build a, a life and a community together um, and have their own place. You know, in the case of, of Pennytown, um, it thrived for, you know, from uh, 1873 until, um, or actually 1871, I think, until, you know, the early 1940s. So it was, it was sort of going out of, out of existence at the very time that, uh, that Pinhook was coming into existence, right? So um, I've always sort of thought of there's kind of like this weird connection between my own sort of family history and the history of this town of Pinhook, which you know sort of further connected me to the people there. And um, even though the town is not there anymore physically, and all the residents have moved into you know the small part of um, Sykes Town, do they still have Pinhook Day? I remember from the book, you know, Pinhook Day is like around uh, Memorial Day and it's time for everybody to come back together and kind of celebrate the town. And they continued it after the flood. So are they still, um, now Now that they've settled into a new, ho- new homes, are they still continuing with Pinhook Day? Yeah, yeah, they, they are. I mean, they, they couldn't have it this uh, past May because of uh, COVID, um, but they did have it last year. And um mm-hmm. They had it every year after the flood. Um, one of the things that's, uh, that's really cool is um, in 2018, when the houses were built, uh, Mennonite Disaster Services also built them a picnic shelter out at uh, the Pinhook land. Um, so they, they still can, like Pinhook still technically belongs to them and they can still be out there. I mean, it's their place. Um, they can't build a habitable uh, dwelling on the land anymore. Um, but this picnic shelter, which is like a 20 by 60 foot picnic shelter, um, they can, for Pinhook Day, go out there and have cel- have a big celebration and fry a fish and all the things that they do for Pinhook Day, which is like, uh, you know, it's a, it's a traditional African-American homecoming. Um, and uh, it's really important to them. And, uh, you know, I remember, I remember that year, 2018, when they were, you know, the first year that they were using the, the picnic shelter it doesn't have a, a concrete base to it. So it's just, um, you know, sort of a wooden shelter that's um, anchored into the, into the ground. And um, uh, Jeff is a Jeff Kohler, I think is his name, who was the project manager. And he's like the director of, um, of projects for Mennonite disaster services in the Western part of the United States. And he was saying to, to Deborah, well, we could, you know, we could come back and, and put a concrete floor here and Deborah said, "No, I don't want. I don't want a concrete floor. I want to be able to take my shoes off and have my feet in the soil of Pinhook." And so they decided right then there were there would be no no floor that everybody who came there could have their feet right in the ground of Pinhook, and that's super important to them. That place is still mm. important to them, even though they don't live there anymore. Right. So what happens to the farmland? Are, uh, is, anybody, is it just land now? Are they farming it or what's what's going on with the land itself? Well, 
they basically um, lease it out. So it's being farmed. Um, and there are some people who mm -hmm. there's like maybe one or two people. I don't know. I'm kind of like, uh, uh, I'm not a hundred percent positive on how this works, but there's a few people who did live at Pinhook or still farming that land. But I think my understanding was last time we were talking to the Malayan, am I right? That was basically one person who was kind of like leasing the land right. and doing yeah. most of the farming. Is that the way you remember it? Yeah. I don't know any more about that. Um, no, I don't know anymore. Uh -uh. Okay. Um, I'd like to, uh, you know, talk a little bit more about the process of research. So I know that, um, you know, you mentioned um, learning how to uh, learning how to have a partner in doing your research. And um, so I'd like to hear some of your thoughts uh, about that, but also this idea of um, reciprocal and ethical ethnography. So Elaine, you've written a lot about reciprocal ethnography where researchers share their work with their collaborators for feedback. And, you know, in a case like this, there's a lot of, um, you know, you're doing research in a community that has obviously been wronged. So it makes me think about what is the responsibility of a researcher when they, um, you know, when they do research on a subject like this? Does it stop at just, you know, collecting oral narratives and testimony, which I understand is very important as well because it is a counter-narrative and is a testimony, you know, against erasure. But um, are, should and can researchers go beyond that? Did you... Um, go and uh, advocate for them, um, advocate with them? Did you help them navigate the bureaucratic process? What are, what are yeah, so I'm just kind of like thinking out loud about what are the um, responsibilities of a researcher in cases like these? Well, those are great questions. And Todd, you, you answer too, okay? I think I wrote somewhere that reciprocal ethnography is never easy. <laughs> It's, it sounds good on paper, right? And it, and it does work. It, in some cases, it works beautifully. Uh, and a lot of my work with women ministers, whatever, um, it worked. But they're all, there are big challenges to it, too. I mean, I remember when I was working in the shelter and I'm, I'm recording survivor stories. And then I want them to read what I've written and, and talk to me about it. Well, they didn't have time. I mean, they literally were trying were trying to survive, and they didn't have time to read what I was writing. And so I found other ways to get responses from people who maybe had lived in shelters or worked in shelters to act as sounding boards for what I was thinking and what I was writing. Um, with this project. Um, I remember one time, again, Todd and I were having a conversation, kind of asking the question, is this reciprocal ethnography? <laughs> um, and I was feeling like, oh, maybe it's not, because, again, they didn't have time. They really weren't interested in sitting down and reading the chapters that we gave them. Um, and what we had to learn was that they really, as Todd was saying, trust, they came to trust us. And they came to trust that we would both say what they thought needed to be said, but also that we'd find ways to advocate for them based on what we thought. So walking that line was really difficult. This We just published an article in um, um, Midwestern Magazine called 
the new territories. And this was the issue that we wanted to really write about was how we differed uh, in our approach and we were more able to show our anger uh, because it wasn't us. And we really were two researchers from universities trying to make sense of all this, but to honor both the way we felt and the way they felt and to make sure both of those were, were um, evident in what we were writing. Um, so it was a constant discussion between us and between us and the community about what needed to be said and how we might say it. Uh, we did not go with them and fill out the forms and argue with the who whatever entities were being argued with. That we didn't think that was our role. They knew what they were doing, and they took care of that stuff. Um, but it is it was a constant negotiation, and I think your word ethical was something we we really tried to keep in mind was that to be ethical about the way we were presenting uh, the various points of view. Um, so I, do you want to add to that, Todd? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what you, everything that you said, I totally agree with. I think, you know, when we first came to the project, when we first met um, Deborah and her family and Pinhook people, I think we thought, okay, there's something we can bring that will be helpful to them. There's something that we can help advocate for them. You know, we, I think we thought of ourselves that way. Um, but I think we quickly came to see that they were already advocating for themselves. Um, everything that we thought that we could sort of bring, um, they were already doing and things that we wanted to suggest to them were not things that they necessarily wanted to do. And, um, so, I mean, we did what we could with the, with the tools that we had available to us, which was to sort of um, work with them to try to tell a story that is both about them and is also about us. And I think, you know, that's really important. I mean, that's, you know, I've learned a lot from Elaine over the years as a teacher and as a research partner. Um, one of those things is like, we're in the story. And maybe that's something about, you know, maybe this version of kind of um, a reciprocal ethnography sort of inspired project was that we didn't, we tried not to hide from them the way that we were in the story. It was hard sometimes to tell, you know, to tell Tuan or, or Deborah, like, I don't, that's not what I think. And I don't think that's, I'm going to say something different in the book but I'm going to put what you say, but I'm also going to like, we're also going to disagree with you or say something in addition, you know, and they would be like, that's okay. Um, we tried to be, you know, open and honest with them. And if I, just to say something about that whole thing of trust, um, you know, I, I asked a lot, asked myself, and I think we asked ourselves a lot because, you know, we would, we would go down and do, you know, um, be with pinhook people. And then Elaine and I would have a, four hour drive to get back to where I would usually drop her, drop her off at her house or pick up my car there and, and go on to Kansas city and then back to uh, Minnesota. But so we had a lot of time to talk these things over in detail every time we went down there. 
And, you know, we were often sort of um, asking ourselves, like, why would they trust us? Why should they trust us? Maybe they shouldn't trust us. Maybe we're not being completely honest. Maybe this isn't the kind of partnership that we we want to think that it is. And over the years, I've sort of understood and heard directly from Deborah um, that they trusted us because we came back, because we spent time with them over the course of 10 years, you know, and we're still talking to them, you know, I mean, it's not as close, you know, we don't get down there to see them um, as often, and it'll probably get less and less and less over the years. Um, but they, there's still a recognition that we had have a relationship, and even though it's changing, um, we still care about them, and they still care about us, and that time that we spent together was real, and it was valuable, and it was genuine. And I think we all recognize that. And I don't really feel now looking back that, oh, I was totally take advantage, taking advantage or anything. I don't feel that way anymore, um, mainly because Deborah has said, you always came back and we trust you. And that meant everything to us, I think, in this project was that they felt that way towards us. And we, of course, had a tremendous amount of respect and affection and you know, everything for them as a real group of people, you know, so we felt our responsibility to them was extremely high. Like we didn't want to get anything wrong. We didn't want to misrepresent anything. Um, We wanted to be honest about our motivations, what we were trying to do, all that kind of stuff. And I I, I hope that the book, um, you know, sort of reflects that. Yeah, the book did. Um, I did really enjoy that you inserted yourself in there as researchers, which I appreciate. And um, because I think that it demonstrates that researchers are not always impartial, you know, all-knowing, uh, you know, all-knowing, um, you know, writers. They have a stake in this too, and you share some of your feelings. And I liked how you kind of switch back and forth about who's asking questions and your reactions. Um, and I thought it was it was a really interesting study of how research can be done. And um, you know, and that just made me think about well, where are the extra steps? Because I also noticed that you had you created doc- a documentary and you also created a website for them as well too. And you know. And I guess Todd, you're maintaining that website. Yeah, right? I mean, not as not as much as I used to do. I mean, but definitely um, maintaining it. And of course, you know, as I said, um, they're sort of at the point where they're feeling like they're it's time to move on. So I think now it's more of an archive of the project more than you know seven years ago. It was like a place where people might find out about them. And, and in fact, you know, um, I think uh, Jeff. Kohler said, you know, the Mennonite Disaster Services guy, that he watched our film on our on the website to find out more about what had happened, you know. So that was one of the things that we felt good about because we felt like we tried to do what we knew how to do. And for years, it just didn't seem like it was helping. They were still coming up against, you know, to dead ends and, and nobody helping them. And But when they finally did get this help, you know, some of the stuff that we did played a role in that. And that that felt good to to know that that was the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also like to ask you a little bit more about uh, Deborah Robinson because she's such a key figure, and it really struck me that you know what she saved the town. She really saved the town because she got everybody out even before they got you know any kind of official notice. And I like you know 
I, I mean, because she's such a key central figure, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about, you know, uh, who she is, the kind of person she is, and her role in maintaining community in Pinhook. Sure. You want to take that one, Elaine? Well, I can start it. Um, okay. She is a formidable woman. She is amazing. Um, I don't think I, for one, have never seen a woman so hell-bent on getting something done and so focused on her generosity uh, and her willingness to work. Um, it was just astounding. I mean, we would leave there at 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and she would have fed us and we would have, she would have tolerated our questions. And then, you know, I'd find out that she made a, a huge birthday cake for somebody and took it over to their house and visited somebody else who was sick. And she, I just don't know where she gets all of her energy and she's not particularly well all the time, but she is astounding in the uh, amount of, energy and yeah and generosity that she has um i think other people love the town too but she really understood the importance of that community to the people who lived there and had raised their kids there um and all the people who had moved away who would come back every year to home homecoming to uh pinhook day um even if they didn't live there anymore they still they had an allegiance to the town they they felt like they were from Pinhook and always would be, and their kids and grandkids would come back. Um, and I, her mother is Aretha, and she was married to one of the founding fathers, Jim Robinson, and she would do the same thing. Like she fed everybody, she took care of everybody. Uh, she and Jim really were the glue that, that created that town, um, and and. Her sister, I mean, the, it's just a fa- an astounding family that held, you know, provided the glue for this particular town. Um, and she always did everything um, with a great deal of humility. She never did anything to seek um, her attention. Uh, she, it was just a, um, she was just generous that way. Um, but people knew, well, still know, that whatever happened with Pinhook was because of Deborah's hard work. She filled out every form. She went to every meeting. Um, and, yeah, just um, selflessly, selflessly worked for this. She did save the town um, when they were trying to get out the flood. And some people would call her the mayor or the manager. And, and I think over time... They came to understand that it, she she was the point person. If you wanted to find out anything or get anything done, you went to Deborah. That's for sure. Um, but she didn't insist on that. It was only through actions, not with what she called herself or what she did. Um, and it, in general, I mean, I remember working on that chapter about the women. Um, I think it's it maybe a stereotype, but it also is flatly true that African-American women have taken on a lot of the work, uh, a lot of the public work. Um, and part of that's to keep the families together, to keep the community together. Um, and, and this group of women 
certainly um, were out, out in front trying to take care of business and get things done without pissing off a lot of people. I mean, it was just, it was really amazing to watch. Yeah, and I think they were doing it their way, you know, they, right, right. they were doing it their way and, it, and their way was very much informed by their faith. Yeah. It was informed by their um, ancestors. It was mm-hmm. informed by the way they thought about their community and the way that they had experienced it, you know, and a desire to preserve that. But yeah, I, w- I would just echo everything that Elaine said about Deborah, really an extraordinary person. And I think maybe one thing I would add is that um, a lot of people told us, you know, that before this happened, Deborah was really quiet and hardly ever spoke. I mean, she wasn't uh, out front kind of person, but when this happened, she took on the responsibility. And if you, many times when we asked her, you know, why, why you, why did you do this? And she would basically say, this is what my dad would have wanted me to do. This is what my granddad would have wanted me to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so there was this kind of feeling of, you know, like um, it, when something needs to be done and you're the one to do it, you do it. And and that's what she's done for, you know, um, for all these years and that great sacrifice to her, as Elaine said, her her health has not always been the best. Uh, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not now, it's, it's suffering a little bit now. And and uh, for her personal life and, you know, all these sorts of elements of her life, she sacrificed for this town to, you know, do what she could do. And in the end, even though, you know, we might look at what the, what happened in the end and think like, you know, dang it, that's that's not what should have happened. None of that would have happened at all if it hadn't been for Deborah and those other women who mm-hmm. worked for it. She sounds definitely like an amazing woman. It came through very clearly in the book. Um, and I noticed, you know, I also noted that she made a quilt um, of all the houses that were in, in Pinhook that were destroyed by the flood. And I thought that was pretty extra- extraordinary. I mean, she seems multi-talented. Yeah, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if she made that quilt. I think somebody else made that quilt, but people contributed to a whole bunch of different Oh, yeah, but okay. that was, you know, that's a sort of another aspect of it that, you know, I was talking to someone else about uh, Pinhook the other day. And, you know, another sort of amazing thing is the kind of artwork and, and sort of uh, material culture that came out of this whole experience, like the kinds of things that they were making, the the food and the quilts and the, you know, the art, all the sort of stuff that was that was generated around this experience that they were all going through as a, as a community was really extraordinary too. And, and that all connects to, you know, the homecoming as this kind of, um, you know, sort of vernacular mechanism to hold the community together. um, Even though they'd all been, you know, dispersed to these other places, you know, so that's a fascinating aspect of it too. She's certainly, even if she didn't make that, that quilt herself, she was right in the middle of it. I can't remember whether or not she made it. But in my mind, I'm thinking that it was another woman that, that made that quilt. But Well, it's still, I think it's still um, indicative of kind of like the community that she really brought together um, after, you know, after the flooding of Pinhook. Well, you know, I feel like there's a lot more I could talk to you with, um, talk to you about this, but, you know, I've already taken a lot of your time. Um, and, uh, 
you know, I'd like to ask you one final question um, that's not related to the book, actually, but what is your next project that you're working on? So, um, Todd, do you want to start? And then Elaine, you can tell us what your pro- what your next project is. Um, so uh, right now I'm, I'm working um, with a group at the University of St. Thomas. We're called the Urban Art um, Mapping Project. And we've been working on um, street art in uh, the Twin Cities. But uh, yeah, since uh, May, we've, we started the uh, George Floyd and anti-racist uh, street art database. So that's what we're working on right now, which is a archive of images of um of street art um that's been a part of the the movement since uh, the murder of george floyd um and we have uh, uh an online presence so you can search um george floyd uh street art database and you'll find our our database it's it's available for educational and research purposes um, there's about 1500 um records in it right now and we're still uh, getting more. So uh, if wow. you have an image of anything like a sticker, a, a tag, a, a mural that went up in your town over the last you know few months, if it's on your phone, please uh, send it to us. You can actually upload those images um, at the website or you can send it directly to me and we will we want to keep adding these images to the database to make sure to preserve um, what the feelings were what the response was to this horrible event that took place here in uh, where I am in the uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul area. That sounds like another incredible project. Um, <laughs> what's your next amazing project that you're working on? Oh yeah. Um, so during the pandemic, I actually packed up everything I own and moved to North Carolina. So I don't live in Missouri anymore. Um, and no sooner than I got here Uh, We discovered that the schools were closing. So I have three very small grandchildren in um, near uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, who are homeschooling. So right now I'm homeschooling children. Uh, My daughter's in Holly Springs. I'm helping her homeschool her children. And it's probably the first time in my life I don't have three books on the back burner um, mm-hmm. It's really nice. I don't even know sometimes to do with myself. Um, when I was still in Missouri, I did start writing a memoir, and I don't know if I want to write this memoir or not, or if I ever want it to see the light of day, but I do continue to play with it. Um, and also, when I was in Missouri, I, uh, through friends, became acquainted with um, a, a Program called it's a advocates or um, guardian ad litem. It's a advocacy group for uh, children um, in court cases where there's been domestic violence or um, what other abuse, whatever. Um, and I became interested in that because I I know someone in the law school there, and so I took the training uh, for this kind of work, and then. Uh, decided I couldn't really start anything if I was going to leave Missouri. So I'm, I'm looking into that here. And probably the most interesting research question I've come up with lately um, has to do with the statistics about the increase in violence and abuse and domestic violence during the pandemic and the effect that that's had on children and families. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that will go anywhere. Um, I can't imagine not having a research project going. 
Um, again, it's kind of new for me. Um, and I, I am enjoying not really working hard on something. I've never not worked hard on something. That, mm-hmm. And so this is kind of a breather mm-hmm. time for me. Um, but that's that's one issue that's um, come to my mind that also crosses with so many of the other issues that I care about, um, human rights and social justice and um, the lives of women and children and their children. So we'll see. Okay. Well, I mean, I think this is a great time to take a breather. So I'm looking forward to uh, what comes next. If you decide that you want to put something out there, but I think a breather is definitely, you know, in order. And Todd, I'm looking forward to your next book about uh, the street art about George Floyd. Um, Well, I want to thank you both for um, coming uh, coming on to talk about this. It's uh, it's been really great, um, and um, you know I want to thank yeah I want to thank you for being on the show. The book is um, When They Blew the Levee: Race, Politics, and Community in Pinhook, Missouri. Thank you again. I'm go- I will post the links um, to the um, to uh, to the documentary and also to um, to the website and also to your new work. Um, Todd. So thank you again for coming on, both of you. Thank you for having us. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.